This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We have a breaking news story regarding the reports of fuel fumes in drinking water and military housing. At this hour, at least one school, the Holy Family Catholic Academy Preschool, has shut its doors in an abundance of caution. Families tell us they reported smelling fumes in water in the cafeteria. Here's what we heard when we called the school this morning. School has been canceled for today, November 29th, due to the current Navy at Pearl Harbor and Hickam reports of chemical smell in the water. Please pick up your child immediately. And just before 11 o'clock today, we did hear from the Department of Education. It confirmed that two of its schools, Nimitz Elementary and Red Hill Elementary, reported smelling fumes. Uh, They are providing uh, the students and teachers with bottled water. Uh, They have taped off all the sinks, and they said they are providing frozen lunches so they do not have to use the water. You know, we first got calls about the situation yesterday. The Navy said it sent out personnel to collect water samples but had not found any evidence that the water was unsafe. We have been waiting on an update. The health department says it is in contact with the Navy, which should be releasing additional information. We talked to one military wife who asked that we not use her name. We caught up with her buying water at the Salt Lake Target store. Yeah, I'm leaving the Salt Lake Target right now, actually. I'm in my car. It was madness. They're, like, putting out all – they have no more water to even put out on the floor because people are, like, panic buying, like, supermarket sweep all of the – bottled water but the truth is we need a lot we can't use our water right now like we're being told that there's no evidence that it's unsafe but when we turn on the tap it smells it is diesel fuel like in our water it is jet fuel coming out of our our taps and so we cannot bathe our children we cannot wash dishes we cannot drink it obviously and so you know, you need a lot of water just to, when your lifestyle is dependent on access to clean, regular running water. So everybody's kind of panicking. What, when did you first notice that something was wrong? We didn't notice until a neighbor posted in our neighborhood group page, hey, my water smells like gasoline. You guys should check your water. So I'm like nursing my baby and my husband goes upstairs and checks and he's like, oh yeah, that's diesel he's a diesel mechanic so he's like oh that's like I know that smell and then he brought me a cup of water to smell and I couldn't smell it but he said oh maybe because it the smell like dissipates so quickly then so then once I was finished I got up and I went to the tap myself and poured a cup of water and smelled it right away and you can once you smell it it like hits you like a ton of bricks but the bricks are diesel fuel what time did you first notice this early afternoon yesterday But the thing is, I thought to myself, oh, I took a shower like two hours ago. Like, I would have noticed. I would have smelled it when I was in the shower. But I went upstairs and turned the shower on, and I couldn't smell it until I poured it into a cup and smelled it out of the cup. Because it, like, dissipates so much, like, once it comes out and I get through the shower head. And maybe my sense of smell isn't as sensitive as other people who said that they've been smelling it in their dishwasher for a few days. They've been smelling it in the bathtub for a few days. But we didn't notice it until yesterday, and it seemed to get worse throughout the day. I don't know if that's like psychosomatic or if that's actual levels increasing or what. Did you report it to the authorities? So we called housing. So the thing is, like, you know, the military is tricky, right? Like there's like all these chains of command and everything. And housing we rent through, it's a private company. um, But like ultimately our water supply comes through the Navy. So the company that we rent from couldn't, like, tell us anything or even, like, say anything or put anything out there until they got, like, the okay from the base, I guess. Um, so, yeah, we they, they didn't tell us anything. They just sent an email, like, a vague email about the water supply issue, quote-unquote, um, and that they were aware of it and that, you know, Navy was working on it. Um, and then the Pearl Harbor Facebook group, 
put out a post that basically said, like, oh, a few houses have a chemical smell, but, you know, there's no evidence that it's unsafe, but we're working on it, we're investigating, and, like, that's it. So, and in the meantime, you know, our water is still running, but there's no, like, official stance or statement on anything, like, even out of an, I would expect maybe even out of an abundance of caution, maybe we'll shut the water off just because of the possibility of contamination, but there's not even that. It's very bizarre. And what's the situation with the schools? Uh, what are you hearing from the other uh, military families? So I've heard that they're largely all operating as usual because they're on a different water source. But there are a few um, people I've seen, some neighbors post about some of the private, like, preschools being closed because their water has a, quote, chemical smell as well. So none of my children are in school here right now at the moment. So I don't have, like, any personal information on that aspect. But so your immediate concern... I your immediate concern, though, is just getting drinking water, water to bathe or uh, wash dishes with, wash clothes with. I mean, are there water wagons out? No, that's the thing. No. I mean, like I said, I just went to Target and bought, we went to Safeway yesterday and just bought like a couple of jugs because I didn't want to, you know, wipe out the shelf. And I also didn't know like, oh, maybe it'll go away by tonight or, you know, how this might end up actually impacting us long term so i went back today because we realized we, we bought three jugs yesterday and we used all of it almost already just from like you know pouring it into a cup to brush our teeth and wash our face and i used almost an entire jug just washing one dish pan of dishes um which is definitely far less than i would use if i was running the tap but it's still when you have to buy it jug by jug it's kind of Know, hectic trying to wash bottles and toddler cups and and not being able to do your laundry or take a shower or make coffee it's very like you know like I said when your lifestyle depends on access to regular running water it's difficult to like adjust without preparation and have you smelled fumes want- have you smelled uh fuel fumes at all where you live, in your neighborhood? Just not, like, outside or, you know, in the house or anything like that, just from the water itself. Although some neighbors have claimed that when the sprinklers came on last night, they could smell it. I can't speak to that personally, but that's what I've seen some people saying. Some neighbors have said, you know, oh, I had to take my baby to the emergency room because she, had, you know, got this crazy rash after her bath or, like, oh, my dog won't drink the water for days now. I took him to the emergency vet. I don't know what's wrong with him. Oh, I've had headaches for a week. Like, there's lots of people already reporting supposed symptoms that could possibly be related. And so what do you want to hear from the Navy? I just want them to just acknowledge that there's, like, something going on with our water and that we probably shouldn't be drinking it. You know, even, like I said, out of an abundance of caution, like, hey, we're figuring it out. Like, I don't expect them to come out and say, yes, the Red Hill leak, you know, contaminated your water. And I, that's, that's reaching, that's a reach, you know. But just some sort of acknowledgement for everybody's safety. I have two babies and, you know, and I'm breastfeeding. So, like, my exposure to anything potentially, you know, toxic, you know, affects my children as well, even if they're not touching any of the water or ingesting any of the water. And I just want it to be acknowledged in like an honest and timely way because it's kind of an emergency. That was a military mother who talked to us this morning frustrated that the Navy is not releasing more guidance on the situation about the fuel fumes and the chemical odor in the drinking water on military housing at Pearl Harbor and Hickam. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, 
ihau o kawa o ahu o moloka o lana o mau o kaho olabe o havai Superheroes continue to be popular in entertainment, so we're testing your knowledge of female superheroes on television in today's Backyard Quiz. You may have watched Marvel's WandaVision earlier this year or DC's Supergirl, which aired its series finale this month. Both feature women in the lead roles. You could say they're the TV descendants of the 1970s Wonder Woman series starring Linda Carter. But Carter is actually the second actress to play a female character with superpowers on television. The first was actress and former Hawaii resident Joanna Cameron. She did it on a show that premiered in September of 1975, two months before Wonder Woman first aired. Cameron played high school teacher Andrea Thomas, who acquired the powers of an Egyptian goddess. The powers allowed her to run with the speed of a gazelle, fly like a falcon, and use superhuman strength to fight crime. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know the name of that television show starring Joanna Cameron. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beat has the latest on reapportionment. Will your vote count as the lines for new districts are being redrawn? Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning to discuss it on today's Reality Check. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. I ran with the speed of a gazelle to be here today. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I'm glad. uh, Yeah, it's good to be here. Happy Monday. Yes. So reapportionment. Boy, lots of buzz around that one. Yeah, so this happens every 10 years based on the census. And then, of course, it's going to impact how we draw our political boundaries for for all the seats that are up uh, in the state of Hawaii. It's going on nationally, of course. And today's story is from Blaze Lovell. He and our colleague, Kevin Dayton, who also covers uh, the state capitol, have been reporting several things about this reapportionment plan. What's important to remember is it's it's not settled yet. There is, in fact, a public comment period on proposed plans on how to draw these lines or redraw these lines. That starts tomorrow, runs for a couple of weeks, and then the Hawaii Reapportionment Commission uh, will be uh, putting together a final draft uh, later this year. And, of course, this is all going to impact uh, who runs where in the year 2022. This story in particular, by the way, from Blaze, who's on vacation, well-deserved, focuses on the the state legislature, the 25 seats in the Senate. All of them are up this this time because of reapportionment and the 51 seats uh, in the House, which are, of course, up every two years. And the particular focus is on Oahu and some proposals that could, well, it could pit some existing lawmakers to run against other uh, incumbents. uh, And that could make for some very interesting election outcomes. Yeah. And those lawmakers, I'm sure, are not happy. Uh, I know that uh, Common Cause, you know, Sandy Ma, I think, was saying, well, you Mm -hmm. know, we're not doing this for the lawmakers. It's for the people. And so while they may be concerned that, you know, it's hurting their chances because they're up against their fellow veteran lawmakers, um, you know, it's not an easy thing. No, it's not. And I can tell you that what's also interesting is that the public is welcome to submit their own plans. And four people actually have done that, submitted their own reapportionment or redistricting plans to the reapportionment commission. One of them is from a Kailua resident named Bill Hicks, and he's gotten a lot of attention. He's he's tried to honor what he sees as keeping neighborhoods together, honoring uh, natural boundaries, right, like mountains and, 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 and streams and lakes and whatnot, so that you keep people together. But it's a little tricky. Is Waimanalo and Kailua, for example, part of Portlock? Well, it may seem geographically that it's not. One could look at socioeconomic status as well. 
In fact, it, it was an, an ahupua'a. And so those are things that are taken into consideration as well. Um, I don't want to name too many names because I don't want to frighten people that are out there. But could Donovan Dela Cruz, uh, state senator, face uh, Gil Riviere? They both overlap uh, with the north shore of Oahu. Could Glenn Wakai and Donna Mercado Kim, roughly in that Salt Lake, Kalihi uh, area, and I'm being speaking very generally, could they end up running against each other? Well, it all depends on what the Reapportionment Commission decides. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you would hate to lose veteran lawmakers, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's the process, and, you know, kudos to the, the, the citizens out there are saying, hey, we think we can do better than this first go-around and offering their ideas. Right, and then, you know, other guidelines they need to follow is that each House district has to be about 27,000 people, and each Senate district has to be about 55,000 people. It's got to be fairly compact, fairly contiguous as possible. As I said, you don't want to honor, you don't want to dishonor community and neighborhoods. So we'll get more, but the more the important thing is that the public is welcome. You can go online, go to our site. You can actually click on those maps, take a look at them, and see where where the the politics break, if you will. Yeah, I know there was one head scratcher i think uh, it was a uh, was it a maybe a kalihi housing project they said it was being split up and you're thinking huh what's up with that but yeah it's... yeah there's another there's there's another plan that divides manoa which is is where i live you think of manoa as one district there is one proposal to split it uh in half and it makes me go well who's going to be my next representative but um it, it does happen 10 years ago uh, Carol Fukunaga lost a re-election to Brian Taniguchi because basically their districts are put together into one. Right, and she's now at the city council. So, That's correct. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we hope that uh, citizens will take note, uh, check out those maps, and participate. Thanks, Catherine. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Uh, check out Blaze Level's full story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra, celebrating the season. Presenting Handel's Messiah, conducted by Jory Vinicor, December 11th and 12th at the Hawaii Theater Center. Tickets at myhso.org. Snore much? Wake up wanting to go right back to bed? Well, it might be a sign of sleep apnea. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to an expert about the importance of diagnosing and treating this serious condition. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Care Choices in Hilo, providing palliative, hospice, and bereavement care, now hiring RNs, CNAs, and other health care positions. Application at hawaiicarechoices.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, it's normal. We think a lot about food during the holidays, but consider that the demand at the Hawaii Food Bank doubled over the pandemic. HBR's Casey Harlow joins us to talk about this snapshot. Good morning. Morning, yes. Uh, So the story kind of came about of me thinking about uh, how the pandemic really affected the Hawaii Food Bank. Last year, I interviewed then uh, Executive Director of the Hawaii Food Bank, Ron Mizutani, and uh, just had a lot of discussions about uh, the finance the finances of the Hawaii Food Bank and how they were handling it, especially with that sharp increase in need when you saw lines going out for miles of at Aloha Stadium and kind of wanting to check back in to see like how these food banks are dealing now that we are more than a year and a half into this pandemic and just finding out that you know the need is still there. Uh, when the Hawaii Food Bank uh, first started uh, helping these people in need, uh, they s- at least helped more than twice the amount of people that they normally would have in 2019. And Denny Schleich, uh, who's the mar- marketing director of the Hawaii Food Bank, uh, says uh, that need is still there, but a little bit less than uh, in the initial months of 2020. We're still serving roughly 50% more people 
on a monthly basis compared to prior to the pandemic. So kind of what that looks like is that still like one out of every six Hawaii residents are currently struggling with hunger. So it's still a pretty significant amount. Um, you know, when you put that in terms of numbers, that's roughly, you know, more than 230,000 people still. Um, and then one of the most startling statistics we found that as a result of the pandemic, one in four keiki are struggling with hunger. So it's really impacted, you know, our children, our students and that community to the point where the rate of child food insecurity in Hawaii actually represents the second highest rate in the entire country. So uh, definitely the pandemic has worsened uh, some of the food insecurity that we saw around 2019, 2018, uh, and definitely like in 2020. Uh, but definitely as the effects of the like pandemic continues, uh, you know, with the Delta surge uh, happening earlier this year, there was definitely an increase in need around that time. But right around this time, uh, like uh, Danny uh, said, roughly around 50% more people on a monthly basis uh, compared to 2019. But obviously there are challenges that are continuing uh, here in the islands. I mean, the supply chain issues, uh, that is more of a national thing as well as also having an impact here. And then rising food costs as well. Uh, And Schleich says, you know, the food bank is pretty used to uh, the supply chain issues. They're pretty prepared for like, you know, disaster relief, having enough food in store for just in case a hurricane happens or a tsunami happens and feeding people. But uh, that doesn't mean that they won't feel uh, rising food costs in the future. Sometimes there's a delay in the effect for us. So because we put some of those orders in well in advance, you know, the next time we put them in, we might be hit with, you know, further delays or some of those, you know, increases in prices. And so I know our team is always trying to look at solutions. And at the same time, we understand too, with some of the supply chain issues, how that affects, you know, grocery prices. Already during the pandemic, we've seen some of the highest rates increase in grocery prices in quite some time. And as we continue to see that, you know, for us, it kind of impacts us in a variety of ways. Um, The supply chain issues could impact, you know, what our grocery stores have, you know, on stock on their shelves. And that in turn impacts what they can donate to the food bank. Um, a large majority of our, you know, food resources actually come from donations from grocery stores and local vendors. And so when they don't have as much stock or product to sell, they also don't have as much to donate and tax their operations. And obviously with the rising food costs, right, people are going back to work, and they're still trying to recover from the economic impacts of this pandemic. So with the rising food costs, uh, that also impacts them, and they will need to, you know, reach out and get some more help uh, as far as needing food as well. And the food bank is prepared as well to help them out. And you, you've talked to a number of food banks uh, across the state from different islands. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I spoke to Richard Eust, who's the executive director of the Maui Food Bank. Uh, he says... Uh, they pretty much follow the same kind of rules as the Hawaii Food Bank does, and uh, they've just restarted, resumed the community food drives uh, after more than a year and a half of not having them. Also spoke to Kristen Frost-Albrecht, who's the executive director of the Hawaii Food Basket. She says, like many uh, of the other food banks in the state, uh, they are relying on uh, the continental U.S. in purchasing food. And there's also the we have to take into account the cost of living here in the state, and that also impacts the need that's out there. The cost of living is the highest in Hawaii out of the United States, and I think that and these increasing food costs, we're seeing a lot of two people employed in their household, and they still aren't able to make ends meet. And I think that's going to be the normal for the time being. And uh, there's not a lot of uh, concern. They're, they're still getting a lot of financial assistance, and also people are chipping in. The community is chipping in and donating whatever they can. So uh, whatever need is there, they've reassured me that uh, they will be there and meet the need. Okay, so as you sit down to your uh, holiday dinner, just consider that uh, uh, maybe you might want to share some of your uh, food in your pantry uh, to the food bank or other families in need. Exactly. Giving Tuesdays tomorrow. All right, there you go. Thanks so much, Casey. Thanks. We've been talking with HPR reporter Casey Harlow. To read more about his stories, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
You know, earlier this month, the New York Times published a story about uh, motorized bicycles or e-bikes that are apparently outselling electric cars in the U.S. in 2021. Which got us wondering, is that true here in Hawaii? Well, according to the Hawaii Auto Dealers Association 2021 third quarter report, electric vehicles are strong. They make up nearly 14% of all new vehicles on the road, with the manufacturer Tesla having the largest percent gain in registrations. So how is the e-bike market in Hawaii doing? Well, the conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Lee Chamberlain, one of the owners of Ride Smart Maui, to discuss e-bikes and the biking lifestyle on the Valley Isle. Can you give me you know, an overview of what you're seeing on Maui with your business and your customers? Yeah. Well, I started uh, my company back in 2014, approximately. And then since my beginnings, what we looked at sales from 2016 to current, I'm seeing a 1,400% increase in sales. Wow. But realize that, you know, I am um, a small shop over on the west side of Maui, and I don't venture over much to the other parts of Maui, you know. So we're regionalized pretty much on Maui. I like to think of ourselves anyway that way. In respect to, to increase in sales, obviously we've had a dramatic increase comparatively. Now nationwide, the industry reports that there's a 240% increase of electric bike sales over regular bike sales from the past. The sales that you're making, and I, I believe your wife had stated in an email to me that early on you maybe sold 10 bikes in a year, but now you're averaging 10 bikes a month. Well, 15 a month is where we're at right now, this okay. particular year. And who's buying? Can you give me a sense of the kind of person that is buying? Are we seeing a lot of young people or, or are we seeing kind of all ages? Normally, it's going to be an older, more mature person on this side. Okay, so the demographics here on this part of the island are different from other parts of the island. So there's people that are using the bike for different purposes. You know, my whole purpose in my mission here is to educate people that there's such a thing as alternative transportation and to get people away from the thinking of being totally dependent on the automobile. And so in that regards, the demographic on this side, it seems to be more towards the 50 plus age group. However, I'm getting a lot of locals now that are realizing the benefit of the e-bike and are starting to buy the bike to commute back and forth to work. Just had somebody come in yesterday and said, you know, I'm using the bike to go to work because I can park the bike. I can park my truck, you know, mm -hmm. and she doesn't have to walk as far, but she's on her feet all day doing waitressing at tables. So, you know, again, the benefit of the e-bike being able to park closer rather than having to add that additional walking and, and looking for a place to park and, and so on and so forth is occurring more and more regularly with a lot of people here. What makes Maui pretty conducive to electric bikes? Is it pretty easy to get around on a bike, at least on the west side? Well, that is a problem, okay? The problem is, is that we don't have infrastructure here, okay? It's a chicken and egg concept, right? So if we had the infrastructure, there would be more people riding. But to get the infrastructure, we have to have more people riding. So we have a problem with that, and we've been fighting relative to that for a long, long time to go ahead and implement the plans that have been drawn up and, and drafted for many years and, and to prioritize different infrastructure. So on the west side, for example, there's something called the West Maui Greenway. That was supposed to have been a priority one project in the 90s that was focused on the Cane Hall Road that runs parallel to the Highway 30 that was supposed to be converted into a bicycle pedestrian pathway. It runs 26 miles from the Pali to the Pole Point. That's never occurred. And there's been different money spent on that whole effort with no result. But, you know, I'm excited about the fact that, of course, you know, Federal Congress has just passed a trillion, multi-trillion dollar bill, Build Back Better bill, and then the other infrastructure bill. And so there's money's coming for this kind of thing in the future. So, and then additionally, there's something else that's kind of exciting, and that's SB 1402, which talks about and dictates the fact that we need to quit being so car-centric here in Hawaii, and then lays out requirements for the different counties and so on and so forth to transition from car-centric infrastructure to more multimodal infrastructure. So, again, I see these things maybe happening in the future, but as of right now, we're impeded quite 
quite badly, I think, by the fact they don't have the infrastructure. Yet, that's still not stopping people from buying bikes. But it's not as attractive riding on a highway as it would be on a greenway. I'm telling you that. Just the safety of it all. I mean, it seems like a lot of cars see bicyclists as an obstacle and may not drive with so much care all the time. Yeah, they... Um, they... <laughs> It's interesting. I, uh, there's a, something called three-foot rule, mm-hmm. okay, that we have helped to implement here in Hawaii. So what that means is that cars are supposed to pass bicyclists and give them three foot of space when they pass. <clears throat> well, that not, might not sound like a lot, but it really makes a difference, you know, when you're on a bicycle. So what I did was, a while back after the law was passed, I organized a ride on Maui to ride from Kaului to go ahead and ride to Paia. We had 26 riders, and I cut 26 noodles and extended them off the side of the bike, and we rode from Kaului to Paia and back again with these noodles extending off on the bikes. And there was a, there was so many outrageous, angry comments made with this on the editorial that Maui now had. It was Unbelievable. Not, not one positive comment. Their last I counted was 80 comments. Bicycles don't belong on the highway. You know, we don't share. We don't share the road. We're going to get our, our paintball guns and shoot them. We're going to get standards on our truck and knock them down. You know, that kind of thing. Sure. It gives you a sense of how people look at bicycles. Yeah. Well, hopefully with the increase in e-bike sales, hopefully with the new money's coming in from the infrastructure bill to hopefully create some bicycle lanes and some more bicycle-friendly roadways there on Maui. Hopefully that'll help change the, the culture there. Well, we, we're very hopeful of that fact, you know, and people have to realize that the automobile is not the only solution. And, mm-hmm. it, and everybody talks about affordable means of transportation, and, and the bill is absolutely the most uh, expensive form of transportation, you know. The Department of Transportation has done statistics and, you know, has the statistics to say that 50% trips are five miles or less that people may take in their vehicle, right? And then the 30, 40, 50 rule that they came out of, up with was 30% of the trips people make are one mile or less, 40% are two miles or less, 50% are three miles or less. So those are short trips. I ride back and forth to work on my bike, and it takes me, uh, it's four miles. It takes me 11 minutes to get there or come back. In the wind, up the hill, mm-hmm. still takes me 11, 12 minutes on my e-bike. So in a car, if I don't hit any lights, it takes me eight minutes. Yeah. So what is the difference exactly? And I imagine the bike is more fun, too. Absolutely. And there's a huge number of health benefits associated with the mm-hmm. e-bike comparatively, too. Statistically, you know, you're helping yourself. Avoid a lot of different diseases. The automobile is the most, the largest cause of sedentary lifestyle. And sedentary lifestyle, you know, you look at the studies and talks about all the different negative health effects associated with sedentary lifestyle. I had a guy come in the other day, and he has been on the couch, he says, for two years since COVID, right? The guy couldn't stand up on his own, getting up off the, uh, I put him on a trike because that was the only thing that he could possibly ride because he just didn't have the balance and so on so forth. His muscle structure has completely deteriorated. And it's that sedentary lifestyle. That was an extreme example. But I couldn't put him on any kind of a, a bicycle, but that's exactly where he needs to go. I couldn't put him on the road anyway. I told him that he needs to get a stationary bike and start working out at home and so on and so forth and get a, a personal trainer to bring him back to what we call normal, right? Way out of the picture right now because of his sedentary lifestyle that he chose to have for two years. You know, the majority of us are working, you know, eight, nine, ten hour days, many of us sitting down at a desk. If you tack on that hour commute in the morning and that hour commute in the evening that a lot of us on Oahu have, you know, that's that's ten, twelve hours potentially of sitting. Absolutely. Totally. And then the e bike has been a huge turning point for people's perception of bikes. Mm -hmm. So everybody's, pretty much everybody has ridden a bike in their life, you know, but they have determined that maybe it's too much work or it's too hard, it's not fast enough, you know, all these different things that they associate with giving them an excuse not to ride the bike. But the e-bike overcomes the obstacles associated with the negativities, maybe going uphill or going in the wind, you know, not going fast enough, you know, and those kind of things. But 
again, there's a desperate need for infrastructure to support that kind of change that people need to go ahead and look at. Well, thank you so much for your insight, Lee. I appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Uh-huh. That was Lee Chamberlain, owner of Ride Smart Maui. He was talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the snapshot of e-bikes on the Valley Isle. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. New planet alert. NASA's got its eyes on an exoplanet that absolutely races around its sun. What would life be like there? Find out in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn, can be visible in the south and western skies till they set shortly before midnight. The moon this week will be approaching its new moon phase, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing near week's end. And I understand this week something pretty exciting sounding. We have an extreme planet discovery. Yeah, when it comes to exoplanets, that is planets around other stars, we often hear about some of the weird and wonderful types of planets that astronomers discover. Well, this week is no exception, with a very strange planet being discovered around a star system 855 light years away. The planet was discovered using the Test Space Telescope. What's amazing about this planet is that it orbits its sun in 16 hours. That's a year in 16 hours. This makes it one of the most extreme planets that we've ever discovered. And so that means it's got to be super close to its star. Oh, yeah. Way too close for comfort, in fact. This planet is subject to intense radiation and temperatures, with the surface temperature of this planet reaching about 3,500 Fahrenheit. As a comparison, Mercury, the closest planet to the sun in our solar system, has a surface temperature of around 800 Fahrenheit. It's a steamer over there, huh? <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> and you mentioned Mercury. Is it rocky like Mercury? What, what do we know about the, uh, the texture? Well, it's actually thought to be a gas giant like Jupiter. Nice. But it is extremely hot and therefore classed rather creatively as a hot Jupiter. <laughs> the intense temperature and radiation also means that this planet is almost certainly sterile, too. You're thinking no life there, no little brine shrimp swimming around somewhere. Uh, probably not. And the proximity to the star also raises questions about the planet itself. Can close-in planets like this survive for extended periods of time, i.e. billions of years, or will the intense solar winds from the star strip the atmosphere away completely? That's what's fascinating about studying these extreme worlds is they raise a whole host of new questions for us to answer in terms of how planets are formed, live, and how they meet their end. Questions for a future stargazer and Christopher Phillips. We appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you for the name of the 1970s television series which starred TV's first female superhero. The lead character's name was Andrea Thomas, a high school science teacher with superhuman speed and strength and the ability to fly. She was played by actress and Colorado native Joanna Cameron, who broke into the business in 1969 with a small part in a Bob Hope film. In the following years, she was also featured in a multitude of commercials. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, she appeared in more than 100 commercials on network television in 1979, more than anyone else in advertising history. After appearing in her last film in 1980, she moved permanently to Oahu here. She made use of her nursing and marketing degrees, providing comfort and care and promoting two major hotels. 
If you picked up on the clues we dropped on our show, you know we're talking about the TV show ISIS, which was later syndicated as The Secrets of ISIS. Cameron lived on Oahu until her death last month at the age of 73. We had lots of calls on this one. The winner today, though, is Sid Smith of Hawaii Kai. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, committed to the health and safety of guests, celebrating 50 years with a newly renovated pool deck offering sunset views, welcoming back Kama'aina and visitors. AlaMoanaHotel.com. We live in an on-demand world, and HPR is here for you wherever and whenever you want to listen. Get the best of our local talk shows in podcast form. You can have The Conversation, Bite Marks Cafe, The Body Show, and more. Delivered right to your phone or device as soon as they're released. Plus, subscribe to features like Manu Minute and Off the Road with Dave Lawrence. For the full list, just head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, as we wind down National Entrepreneurs Month, we highlight the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival's Made in Hawaii online marketplace. It's called For Kids by Kids. This kinky program supports student entrepreneurs giving island youth hands-on experience on building a business from the ground up. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Donna Terrian, Director of Education for the Hawaii Agricultural Foundation, to get the details. This Young Entrepreneurs Program is a wonderful way to showcase the energy, the creativity of island youth while giving them some very important life skills like managing a business or creating Mm -hmm. a product that really appeals to buyers for being sustainable, you know, utilizing local ingredients. So what is it like working with a younger talent pool? Well, well, this is where it has to be because we want to get into students' minds that agriculture is way more than plant, grow, and harvest. We need to work on, like you said, the sustainability, increasing our food supply. And one way to do that is with a value-added ag product. So it has been absolutely fabulous working with these young students who are so incredibly talented They're fabulous at looking at what do we have on our campus? What are we already growing? What can we do with that? How do we put that into a business plan? And then how do we market that so that we could sell it? Because this is exactly what real life, real world, authentic learning is. Mm. I love being a part of that. Yeah. I was very impressed with the scope of items. There were beauty products like lip balms, Mm -hmm. pineapple shampoo, And the handcrafted home furnishings, like the driftwood succulent wall hangings and the custom cutting boards. I mean, the wealth of talent from these young folk was very impressive. How are these participants selected? They're selected by the the quality of their business plan. So just like in real life, they have to submit a business plan on how they will take a a locally sourced, and by sourced I mean grown, caught, or raised agricultural product, and how they will turn it into a business. So just like a real business would, they'll create a business plan, come up with a name, their logo, what their why is, how much their startup costs are going to need, and based on the quality of their proposal, we then fund the startup funds up to $800 per school so that they can create their business. Wow, up to 800 per school. Right, and currently we have 15 schools participating on four islands, Maui, Kauai, Hawaii Island, and Oahu, with 19 different departments. And by departments, I mean it might be a culinary department at a school, an agricultural department, the natural resources. And so on our website, the Hawaii Food and Blind Festival Marketplace.com, you'll see 28 different value-added ag products created by our students. And the best part is anybody who purchases those products, all of the profits will be remitted back to each school program. So this online marketplace allows one to do some early holiday shopping and at the same time, knowing that your dollar is staying in state and really supporting these businesses that Mm -hmm. are in these schools. Absolutely. So far, we have almost 
$6,500 in sales, and every penny of that will go back to those 15 different schools. And I'll tell you, that is that is just the cherry on the top. But really, our main emphasis is the educational mindset, the financial literacy, the entrepreneurial skill set that we're developing with these young students. But then when we relift this money back to them, the funds that are generated, oh, that is just so exciting. That's just the icing on the top of the cake. You say cherry on top, but what I'm hearing also is you're, you're keeping the business model sustainable so that the next class following them can maybe continue with this? How long has this program been going on? So this is our fourth year, and you're absolutely right. We have many schools who do this year after year, and we're always trying to get more schools involved, and they are perfecting their product. So, for example, the ulu flower that's, that's been created by Kuhuku High School, they're now planting the breadfruit on their campus so that they can now source their own breadfruit instead of going to the local farm to get it. So, yes, every year they're getting bigger and better with their own processes. And it's really nice how you say you do give that seed startup money to the participants. Also very heartening to hear that you are also realizing the importance of financial literacy. I think that is something Uh that in the past was very glossed over. You know, in schools, we we learn the four R's. But Mm -hmm. what happens in real life? That, that's absolutely correct. And that's where the business plan comes in. We're not just giving these funds away to start a business. You really have to show what are you going to do? How are you sourcing? How are you getting the best prices for for the packaging and the labels? And where are you sourcing this? And that's why many of the schools are looking at what do we already have? And here's where that sustainability comes in. What do we already have on our campus that we can turn so that we could use our startup funds for other things? So, for example, at Kohala High School, they're growing their basil to turn into the pesto. Mm. At Castle High School, they're growing mamake that they'll turn into to tea. So this is where that sustainability really comes in. What do we have an abundance of that we can then turn into a value-added ag product? Mm. And with the four pages to shop through, what happens if something sells out? I'll admit that, you know, I've been adding to the cart. <laughs> I'm getting some background <laughs> on this story. And then there was this beautiful tie-dye tote bag, but they were out yeah. of the blue. Are schools right. taking orders, or is it just this is like a limited it, run? Uh, it all depends on the school. Some are limited runs, and some will take back orders. So please check our website. But that's not the only way to give, because every time you purchase one of these products, mm. The profits are remitted back to the school. But if you really want to help agricultural education in Hawaii, you can also go to hawaiiagfoundation.org and hit the donate button because any donation will also go to all of our ag education programs and supporting them in the state of Hawaii. Well, why don't you take a few moments here to talk about those ag programs? Oh, so we have a continuum of kindergarten to 12th grade ag education programs. Young Entrepreneurs is just one of them. We also have in the elementary schools, Where Would We Be Without Seeds and VeggieU. In those programs, we're starting to look at ag careers, ag technology, the importance of our ag products. We're starting the beginning of ag enterprise where we're looking at vertical gardening. And everything is based on that sustainability. How can we increase our food supply here? Continuing on that continuum is in the fields in our high schools, where we look at authentic ag work studies and interactive ag experiences through field trips. All of our programs come with a field trip at the end of it as well. All supplies, materials, resources are provided for the teachers, our public and target school teachers at no cost. Oh, that is great, Donna. Where were you when I was going through school? You know, ag education is something that, you know, we really don't think about. Elementary, middle, high school, you know, you're looking at biology and botany, but we have to go beyond the the botany into the ag careers and technologies because agriculture is not the same. It's constantly changing. It's not the way it was 100 years ago. Hmm. We, We have the technology of things. It has to be an integrated hybrid sector that is going to include STEM and, you know, STEM and engineering and robotics. 
And so we're really trying to, I'm going to use my metaphor, plant that seed so that we in Hawaii will have a workforce ready to meet the demands of the future growth and population. You know, the Young Entrepreneurs Program has really nailed it. You've got the, the schools vying for the money and mm-hmm. then going through that vetting process. Just the types, right? types of products, value-added products that you are able to see and everybody's coming at it so differently, kind of like, what yeah. are my sources? Ulu, instead of going to other farms now, I'm going to grow it. I mean, this is so, I, I see this long-term vision in action. Oh, we love talking about this because we, you know, again, I'm going to do my air quotes. We just need to plant the seeds with everybody that agriculture is important and that we know that it is slated that by the year 2050, our population will grow to almost 10 billion, which means we have to create at that time 70 percent more food than we're creating now. So how are we going to do that? We have to put value and emphasis on our agricultural industries. You know, we're looking at the schools and the products. I have to lean into Olamana. That is my favorite story. Did you see the Olamana candle holders? Yes, the wooden nestled candle holders. And do you know those kids are the ones who are incarcerated? And the teacher was telling me that they have spent hours just sitting there rubbing and sanding. And when they found out that all of their products sold out immediately, one of the kids was saying that, and and this is how the teacher was paraphrasing, that, that I have value. People want something that I'm making. I'm not Opala. These are the kids who are locked up, who feel Mm -hmm. worthless. Mm -hmm. And to know that if they take their time and malama and put their mana into it, then there's value. And then that means there's, and if it's value in that, that means there's a value in themselves. Uh, Powerful thought, powerful thought. That was Donna Terrian speaking with the Conversations Lillian Song about the Made in Hawaii Marketplace for Kids by Kids. The Young Entrepreneurs Program is run by the Hawaii Agricultural Foundation, which is a beneficiary of the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival. We'll have those links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That's it for today. Tomorrow we hear from the Department of Transportation about the federal funds that we're in line for in the Build Back Better bill. What are your thoughts about the fuel situation at Red Hill? Caller Talk Back Line, 808-792-8217. Miss something? Want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>